Coming up on the Mark Divine Show. You can never let your guard down for it. You can learn just as much from a toxic leader as you can from a good leader. At some point in your career, you're going to run across them. Unfortunately, the military is kind of the perfect breeding ground because good leaders have other options. Good leaders have options to go do other things. And that's a constant pull to them to leave the military and go off and do something else because they can be successful in in doing that other thing. This is Mark Devine, and this is The Mark Devine Show. On this show, I explore what it means to be fearless through the lens of the world's most compassionate, resilient, and inspirational leaders, folks from all walks of life, stoic philosophers, psychedelic researchers, elite entrepreneurs, and military leaders, such as my guest today, Command Sergeant Major Bradley Jones. Today, we're going to meet Bradley, talk about his new book, Treading the Deep, which uh, he recently published giving his perspectives as an enlisted soldier heading up to the highest rank as Command Sergeant Major. It's a very funny and insightful book on leadership. I think you'll enjoy it. Bradley Jones enlisted in the Army in 1984 and was on active duty for a number of years. Then uh, after doing some missionary service and college, got back into the National Guard and served for the rest of his career. Awards serving in combat in Afghanistan, Bronze Star, Meritorious Service Medal, Army Commendation Medal, three Oakleaf Flush, being three times, Army Achievement Medal, Good Conduct, Armed Forces Reserve Medal, Afghanistan Campaign, GWAT Service Medal, et cetera, et cetera, goes on and on. Bradley now works for the FAA and resides in Lehigh, Utah. Welcome to the show, Sergeant Major Bradley Cooper. And it's okay if I call you Brad, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I still have soldiers that um, come up to me and still call me by my title, and I say, you know what? You get to call me Brad now. Now you can, yeah. It's a mouthful, you know what I mean? I love the Army, right? It's like, you, even the Navy, like, you can get a little bit of a mouthful when you get up into those higher ranks, you know, because we have the Master Chief, and then, of course, if you're a Command Master Chief, you're a Command Master Chief, but then you're the Force Master Chief, and not much higher to go after that. No, no. <laughs> so you could be, a, you could go higher than Command Sergeant Major, and that would, I guess probably be the, what do they call the Force Sergeant Major? What's he called? Well, um, there's the Sergeant Major of the Army. And once you make that rank, though, you only go up in in responsibility. Um, Command Sergeant Majors start out at the battalion level, and then they can go to brigade level, uh, and then above, you know, division, um, that kind of thing. So, so, so to clarify for people, the the actual rank is Sergeant Major, and the command designates kind of the the operational level that you're working at. It's yeah, you're. It's an appointed position. Um, you're paired up with a battalion, brigade, division commander. Right, and you're the right hand person, the guy who runs yep. the day to day to day ops and all the enlisted folks. Yep, you represent all the matters regarding the enlisted. Right. Oh, that's awesome. So I want to get into your military career and and this this great book that you've recently penned, but. Let's tell, talk a little bit about yourself. Like, where are you from? Are you from Utah, where you live now? And what were some of your formative influences growing up? No, I was born in Oregon, born in Ashland, Oregon, and um, moved up to Portland. And that's where I grew up and uh, graduated from high school in Clackamas, Oregon, and um, had a best friend that was had already joined the military and was hanging out with him one day in the summer after we graduated. And he said, hey, I need to stop by the recruiting office. And so I was just happened to be with him and went in. And of course, recruiters being recruiters, they... Yeah. Asked, Guess know, what? They recruited you. <laughs> what are your plans? 
So <laughs> that's how it all began. That's awesome. I wonder if your your friend uh, had an ulterior motive there. <laughs> <laughs> he he may have. Um, it's a uh, it's a really cool because he actually lives south of me now in Price, Utah. Uh, he's down there taking care of his uncle, and so we get to get together uh, probably once a month and have dinner and talk old times and stuff. So it's it's kind of neat. That is neat. Okay, so again, you you went into the military pretty early. What, what was the childhood like up to that point? Like, were you an athlete? What were your parents like? What were some of your kind of uh, shaping influences? Well, I came from um, divorced parents uh, and was just a pretty regular kid. Huge into uh, skateboarding when I was younger. You know, into um, the whole skateboarding scene in the seventies. Tony Alba, Stacy Peralta, Jay Adams, and the whole Dogtown scene. That was. That was what I lived for. Hmm. So skateboarding was pretty big up in Oregon too. I didn't realize that. <laughs> well, it, it was in a different way because we had no skateboard parks, you know, during that time. So a lot of my Christmas presents in those years were to come down to California and go to uh, skateboard parks in Southern California. So I was lucky enough to be able to do uh, go to some of the, you know, more famous ones um, that you see in the magazines. That was kind of what I lived for. And, and then, you know, did okay in school. I was an average student, played a lot of sports in my younger years. And then around high school, had a job and uh, got away from sports just uh, so I could work, um, that kind of thing. So, but um, no real vision for, you know, what I, what I wanted to do after high school. And so going to that recruiting office obviously was a huge turning point in my life and just really set the direction uh, for things, um, for future things. So, and in my book kind of lays all that out, how that all came about. Right. Like me, you were uh, in and out of active duty. So you didn't do a full 20 active. Um, so I did about 10 uh, active, nine and a half active and about 11, uh, 10 and a half reserve. Most people don't really understand, you know, how the reserves and the guard work. And it'll be fun to talk about that. But let's first, what was the, your first active stint like? And what were some of the big lessons and challenges that, that you experienced there that, that people could glean some insights from? Well, you know, I, I joined to be a radar repairman and went to Fort Gordon, Georgia after basic and spent a year there in training. Um, I was only supposed to be 22 weeks and turned into a year. Um, they actually added an extra course combined our, you know, my MOS um, with another course. And so we ended up kind of being the guinea pigs and staying there for a year. And then I got orders to go out to Fort Huachuca, Arizona, and never heard of the base before and thought, okay, Arizona, you know, I wanted to go to Germany and, you know, some of the more exotic places, but I went to Arizona and got there and noticed that the building where my section was, was nowhere near the airfield. And Finally, had asked somebody, you know, the guy that was helping me in process, hey, where are the radars? And he realized that, you know, that I hadn't gotten gotten the word yet. And he said, well, you're not going to work on radars in this. In this uh, <laughs> after, after a year of training, I got to love the, the military, right? Their wisdom. <laughs> so, you know, that kind of that was huge shock. And so, you know, one of the first instances in my book where I talk about sitting down with Jack, uh, with Master Sergeant Jack Crumling. And, you know, he's an E8 and I was an E3. And um, I went in and asked if I could talk to him and sat down at his desk and just said, you know, 
I spent a year in radar school and now I'm being told I'm not going to work on radars. And, you know, that was a huge risk. And um, he could have very well just, you know, said, hey, you're in the army, you know, shut up and deal with it. and Suck it up, buttercup, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, but he didn't. He said, well, let's go down to the radar lab. And so we went down there and I actually met the guy that I was told I was going to work for. And there were a bunch of soldiers down there with my same MOS and they were all waiting to go somewhere else because that whole airfield had been taken over by civilian contractor. And so I talked to that guy, uh, that other E8, and he said, you know, you're in a unique position. Master Sergeant Crumling is a great guy and he'll take care of you and you need to sink your teeth into to that job. And so after we left the radar lab, um, Jack drove me around the base and basically showed me this is what we do here and i got to i mean we were testing night vision goggles and unmanned aerial vehicles were being tested and then i ended up working on the project that was the genesis for gps and so by the end of the tour he was like you know so what do you think and i was i was absolutely blown away and he you know basically says so you on the team and i was like i'm on the team so you know, I did that job for three years and we went to contracting companies, were taught the maintenance for the systems that we would eventually test in the desert. And, um, and then the army would decide if they wanted to buy it. And so um, it was a very unique environment to work in in the military and the, the experience there, and especially with how Jack handled me coming in and basically saying, like, I don't want to be here. But, you know, that really set the tone for the leader I became because I never forgot how Jack mentored me mm -hmm. and others. There were others that, that were influential, obviously. And What, what would you say, um, you know, like his, as your first experience with an enlisted, senior enlisted leader in the Army, what were, what were his top qualities that made him so effective and, and so um, likable and, I guess, respected by you? Well, you know, one of the things that he did was he petitioned the Army, the Department of the Army, because I had, you know, I came in at some point we had a conversation and I told him, like, I did the radar repair course and then they added this extra course and then combined it into a different MOS. And when I took the, when my class took that course, that was considered, they, they called it an, an associated skill identifier, an ASI. And when, when we took that course, that was a separate course, uh, or previously it was an ex, a separate course, and it was worth promotion points. So, you know, Jack petitioned the Army on his own and, you know, got a letter from DA and brought me in one day and said, you know, show me this letter. And it gave me all these extra promotion points. And he did that on his own. You know, I would have never thought, I, I didn't know the system like he did, but I would have never thought um, to even, you know, look into something like that. But he did, his, did that on his own. And, you know, that really, you know, that said something to me. I've never forgotten what he did for me that on his own to take care of one of the soldiers. Yeah, that's a classic servant leader who, you know, who's, who's looking out for the well-being of, of his or her troops uh, without even them being aware of it or needing knowing that they need to be looked out for. 
<laughs> yeah. It's like looking for opportunities to, to write people up for doing good things is another great example of that. It was pretty rare in the SEAL teams, but you, you know, when you came across an officer or a, a senior leader who was looking for you doing good, man, you, you had a special leader because most people are kind of taught or enculturated to look for you doing something wrong, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, but I mean, he did kick my butt when I needed it. You know, and there's, I write a, I write a couple, about a couple instances where he, you know, put me in my place. And, but the one good thing about him was at one point he said to, to me and to a couple of us, look, I can get mad and, you know, and I'll, I'll chew your ass. But when it's all over with, I don't hold on to it. And I remember thinking, you know, at the time, like, that was I. That was kind of unheard of, you know. That, that a leader, you know, can get upset, put you in your place, or you know, reiterate the expectation, and then after that, he'd go back to being the way he was before, and that uh, said a lot to me at the time. And I thought back many, you know, over the years, many times on on those, you know, very important early lessons that I learned from him. Yeah. It's interesting. It's kind of going through my mind and like my own experiences. I'm curious if, whether you learned more uh, by experiencing the leadership of good leaders uh, like this, this, um, this individual or just by doing and, and your own screw ups <laughs> or it's kind both. of equal. Both. Yeah. It's a both and, right? Both. <laughs> both. Um, I, there's a couple of things. I think there's three things I write about in, you know, as a young soldier that absolutely in, incredibly embarrassing things that I did that I totally laugh about now. And those are the things that, that as I became a senior leader, that when I would talk to soldiers and groups or something, and, and those are the stories that I would tell them as a way of saying like, you know what, I started out in the same spot. And many times when I meet with a group or something, I would be asked the question, Hey, when you, Sergeant Major, when you were in our position, did you ever imagine that you'd get to where you are now? And I would say, absolutely not. You know, I basically uh, reiterated to them that I basically just did the right, the right things, you know, stayed in shape, you know, sought education. And along the way, I wasn't the strongest. I wasn't the smartest soldier. I wasn't the most experienced. But, you know, those core things that I sustained over the years had a huge impact on my, on my career and, and the trajectory of my career. So, yeah, sometimes, you know, the, the biggest driver of success is just staying in the game. <laughs> Absolutely. Right? Just staying in the game, you know, and going through all those ups and downs and, and you know, seeing failures not as something that were you as a bad person or a screw up, but something that just happened that you can learn from. So you, you mentioned embarrassing things. You have to tell us, like, what was the most embarrassing or silly thing that you did that you learned from? <laughs> um, well, one time I drove a five-ton truck towing a, a generator, a trailer with a 60K generator on the back, and I drove it clear across the base with the emergency brake <laughs> still applied on the trailer, and I pulled into the motor pool and I noticed like everybody was stopping what they were doing and turning and looking at me. <laughs> and I thought, oh, okay, they're checking me out. And when I stopped the truck, then this huge cloud of white smoke just 
continued on <laughs> past the cab and I got out and I looked and the, like, that, that white cloud was going like down. I could see it like a couple blocks away rising in the air oh and it had been trailing that trailer and the, <laughs> and the, the captain over the motor pool of the OIC over the motor pool came out and he just, he looked and then he just looked down and he just shook his head. <laughs> and, and, and what he said to me was monumental. He said, Sergeant Jones, can I safely assume that you did not perform a proper PMCS on that trailer <laughs> before you drove that truck? And I was like, yes, sir. <laughs> That's a safe assumption. I love it. <laughs> you love it when, when people can deal with those screw-ups with a sense of humor. I think it's really important quality for a leader, right? Because you can immediately diffuse a situation without humiliating you know, the perpetrator and, and the lesson is going to be, is going to take hold, right? As opposed to the humi humiliation then. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm sure you can see the look on my face. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrific. <laughs> So you got off active duty though. What what led you to leave active duty, and then what was the the impetus to get back uh, into the reserves and National Guard or whichever you know path? You well, took? one of the things that kind of, that happened along the way um, in basic and um, AIT was was that uh, my brother had served a mission for the church that we belong to, and um, you know I live in Utah, so most people can figure it out. And so he really kind of set the example, and so. About the time I was getting to the point of ending my the, the, my four year enlistment, I decided that the, I wanted to do that also because I saw what it had done for him. So I got out of the military, out of uh, left active duty, and and then served a two year mission in um, South America. And you know, while I was down there uh, doing that, I realized many times along the way down in those two years that how much the military had you know, how, how much it had affected me as a person, how much it, you know, affected my character. It just, it really set the tone. And so when I got done with that, I just had always had it in the back of my mind that when I came back and wherever I got settled, I was going to look, you know, back into, you know, joining, going back to active duty or something. I ended up coming here to go to college and then joining the guard and stuff. But I, you know, at some, some point along the way, I realized, you know, the military never left my system. And I heard so many other friends say that to me that, you know, had a, people I work with, veterans I, I work with even to this day have at some point said, yeah, I, you know, I did four years or I did, did an enlistment and they, they miss it. They, you know, they wish that they had continued to serve. Okay, we're going to take a short break here from the Mark Devine Show to hear a short message from one of our partners. After 30 years in the trenches forging leaders, one of the most important things that I've learned about bringing out the fullest potential in someone is that leaders thrive in supportive team environments. Being part of an elite team activates something deep inside where you can find a whole new level of drive and discipline that you never knew you had. I just opened a few spots in my highest level, most elite coaching program called Unbeatable Team. The Unbeatable Team program is an elite team mastermind with a number of events throughout the year for high-performing leaders looking to unlock even higher levels of performance by surrounding themselves with a support system that'll help them blast through personal barriers and limiting beliefs. The truth is that when you're part of an elite unit, you transcend your personal limitations and you'll do anything to avoid letting your team down. All of us are hardwired to get our best results when we're part of a winning team. I saw this as a Navy SEAL and I've seen it over and over again. Training Navy SEALs, 
and as an executive coach and in my own organization. The right team is the ultimate leverage to increase your personal potential. If you think you're a fit for the Unbeatable team, go to unbeatablemind.com, learn more, and click on Start Here to apply. I hope to see you there. And now back to the show. And I think that's the power of the guard and the reserves, right? You can still serve, but you, you know, you're a civilian servant, you know, you can still have a family and be home for business. And, you know, if war breaks out, then of course, you know, break glass and you have to go. What, what that experience to me, like for, for me, you know, the, the men in the SEAL teams and the platoons, it's really that, that tight you know, operational unit, usually that you're first with, you become like this, this lifetime friends, right? The bond that's developed through that rite of passage is, is extraordinary. It's never ending. And so you, it's very difficult to find that out in the civilian world. And I see that all the time. And it's one, one of the reasons I'm sure like in your work with people with post-traumatic stress, it's that loss of that camaraderie and that, that tight team that had each other's back and, you know, in the military sense, were literally willing to lay their lives down for each other. And also were kind of bonded in a common mission. You add a little risk to that, and now you've got a, a, a formula for just an incredible deep relationship, which is hard to find. You know, so that's, I think, really missing in our culture, right? To have a rite of passage where you know, people can have an experience like this. And for the military, it's such a small percentage of us that, that volunteer and have this experience. And it's, I think it's unfortunate that we don't have some other mechanism for it. I mean, perhaps like the missionary experience gives some, some qualities of that. I'm curious if it did or does. It, and it absolutely did. I mean, it was, it's a team effort. I mean, you're in a foreign country. You know, I realized when we were leaving to go down there that these other, you know, missionaries that I was with, they'd never, some of them had never even been out of, out of their home state. At that point, I'd already, you know, lived in a couple different places across the country through the military. I also lived in Australia, moved to Australia in my uh, junior year in high school. And so I'd lived outside the country. And so I remember realizing like, these guys are, you know, they're nervous. They've never, you know, leaving the country is a huge deal. And, you know, when you, when you get into a, a place like South America, I mean, that the culture shock alone uh, can be tremendous. And so that kind of, that bonded us together. And then just the nature of the work of out there, you know, basically, helping the people in whatever way we could, we could, I mean, humanitarian projects, I mean, you name it. And so I guess I realized during that time, like the military, I mean, who's first to a humanitarian project on a, on a world scale? We are U S military. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, it just, they played, they played into each other. And I, I just realized like it was in my blood. It was absolutely in my blood. That's awesome. This is the first time I've shared this, but I've pivoted with uh, SealFit, my team and I, just recently, and we've launched um, our, or we organized our training around what we call a hero's journey. And, and and at the at the all in level, it's a year long journey, but it's comprised of four separate quests. And the first quest is to get SealFit, and that's to learn the physical, mental, and emotional challenge or training to become, you know, uh, have the basic attributes to train like a Navy SEAL or like a military operator. The second quest is what I call to be unbeatable, and that's to learn how to be a good person, how to be integrated, how to be whole, how to you know, lead with your heart, and, and, to, and to really learn how to be as opposed to just do, because we have this massive bias toward action. 
The third quest is the quest for the inner warrior, right? So that's the spiritual journey, you know, to really go deep and understand your relationship with yourself, your higher power, and also to understand what your calling is. And then the fourth quest is what we call to be sheepdog strong. And that's so that you can be the person that when you, when you come across a car accident, you're not pulling out your phone and videotaping it, yep. right? You're, you're going and immediately rending assistance because you know how to do first aid. You know how to do field trauma. Or if the crisis comes, like we've had people literally that have averted first-person shooter situations from this training. Because I recognize, we recognized, and we want these quests in this hero's journey to be accessible to father and sons, mother and daughters, and also to teens as, as a rite of passage. And because we, we feel like our country's just gotten kind of weak and soft and the commercial interests and, you know, the pandering and the victimization and the woke culture have really kind of like led us down this path where everyone's kind of wandering and they've lost their control of their hero's journey. And so we need to, you know, provide, you know, guys like you and I who've been through it can, can lead by example and set up conditions, you know, for people to get strong in body, mind and spirit again. And also recognize that doing it as a team is critical, right? Because nobody really goes through hero's journeys alone. And that's what we experienced, right? It's our teammates that inspired us. Exactly. When I, like, I, I had a book signing this weekend and I ended up sitting next to Dan Schilling. Oh, yeah. The author of uh, Alone at Dawn. And he was there, you know, for the whole Black Hawk Down thing in Mogadishu. And was he a ranger or was he near guy? He was, he was, he was a combat controller. Okay. And so, um, and I, you know, we, we've done a couple of book signings together before, so it was kind of neat to be able to sit down and, and talk again. And, you know, he has a book out and it's basically about situational awareness and how to increase situational awareness and, and, uh, teaching that to the everyday citizen out there. And it was funny because we were joking about the fact that, you know, we're the ones that pull up into the grocery store parking lot and then get out of the car and we're, you know, have our head on a swivel and, That's right. you know, it's like, okay, there's a guy over there. There's, you know, somebody That's over right. here, you know, you like, you never lose that. You're ingrained. always scanning. That's ingrained in us. You're, you're constantly looking around, you know, yeah, yeah. assessing. And so, you know, it was neat to hear him talk about his book to other, uh, to people that showed up to the book signing and how, you know, how important that is for just like you were saying, where people, don't have that. I think it's, um, you know, guys like you and I have written books, not in a, in a sense of like, hey, I was there you know, knee deep in hand grenade pins and oh, look at how badass I was, right? Those books have some entertainment value, but a lot of times they do more damage than good. But when you, when you can write a book where you glean really interesting life lessons, leadership secrets, um, you know, teach people like situation awareness like this guy or, or you know, how to think like a Navy SEAL, it does, it's a great service. The way I look at it is like, you know, the, the taxpayers basically funded 30 years of our, you know, of our service. And so why not give a little bit back? You know, as long as you're not revealing any state secrets or, you know, any operational kind of uh, nuances. And, and of course, you know, if you've got the right intentions, you would never do that. You know, they're all stories and, and names and places are meaning, really irrelevant, right? Mm-hmm. So good job on that. I think it's important, even though we might get criticized by some of our teammates, right, for, for putting a book out there. And you probably had that a little bit too. Okay. So your book is called Treading the Deep. First, why, why did you title it that? What's the deep or the depth? <laughs> well, it actually uh, came out of a conversation I had right before we 
launched into Afghanistan for a combat deployment. Uh, we were doing um, mobilization stuff in Fort Hood, Texas. And I had, I was the first sergeant over Delta Company, which was the largest company in the battalion. And one of my section leaders had called me. I had six section leaders under me. And one of them had called me and said, uh, he was ta- referring to another section leader, you know, can you believe that? Are you going to let him do that? And I just thought, no, I'm not doing this. I'm not playing the parent role in this situation. So I told all my section leaders, I want, I want to see you guys tonight at seven o'clock in my office. And so they came in and sat, you know, sat down and talked for a few minutes. And then they kind of all turned like, okay, why are we here? And so I said, you know, I looked at each one of them and I looked at the guy over, you know, prop and rotor. And I said, you know, I've never done your job. I looked at the guy over quality control, never done your job. Looked at the guy over production control, never done your job. Looked at the guy, you know, over aircraft uh, maintenance, um, never done your job. And the guy over the armament section, I said, I've done your job. I said, you know, you guys are the subject matter experts and I rely on you to take care of your domain. And if there's an issue, then you need to work it out with each other. I said, you need to learn how to tread deep water. You're one step away from where I'm at now. And you need to remember that come if something drastic happens, one of you could be called up to step into my shoes. And you need to be mentally prepared for that. And so I don't know where I came up with, you know, you need to learn how to tread deep water, but it always kind of stuck with me. And then, of course, titling a book is, you know, I had hundreds of different titles, but I keep, when I came up with that one, the, the, my publisher, they just immediately were like, that's it. That's the title of the book. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. I love that. I love titles like that where you make you kind of like, hmm. My last uh, book, I was going to call it the, the somewhat formulaic, you know, seven commitments that forge elite teams. And I'd, um, I, I, I was wanting to try a new process. And so I hired uh, kind of an editor slash writer to interview me. So I would scope out every chapter and, and then uh, he would interview and record it and then kind of spin back like the first draft. So after four chapters of this, when he spun it back to me, instead of the title on the cover being Seven Commitment to Forge League Teams, it said Staring Down the Wolf. <laughs> I love it. And I was like, oh, shit, I love that title. And, and he had gotten it by uh, an earlier book I had written um, called Unbeatable Mind. And on the, I had a picture of me staring down a wolf on the cover. And he was inspired by that. And so, you know, we titled the book that. Ironically, I had to go back and recontextualize a lot of the introduction and, and some of the chapters because, you know, otherwise that, that title wouldn't have made any sense to people. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. You know, the one thing that happened when they, you know, when I got the title and then the publishing or the cover design department sent me some, you know, different cover designs and stuff. And when I showed people the, you know, four different cover designs and the one that, that made the final cut more people reacted to that and the and the title of the book they you know it was just it was overwhelmingly for that one it evoked many things from different people it was kind of funny because and i'm sure you've seen the cover where the guys on the front out looking over the ocean and and some some people that saw it said oh he's saluting and then others would be like no he's not he's like you know he's he's like looking you know and i and when I told that to the 
you know, to my contact at the publishing company, he, he said, Hey, that's the best thing is if it speaks to different people in different ways. So that's awesome. So do you have, um, like distill kind of some of the top lessons, um, or are you, are you just telling stories or what's kind of the architecture for the book and how did you best, how did you get your message across? It's basically kind of a follows, you know, my career in chronological order. And, you know, the lessons that I learned early in my career are, are set in that, you know, in, the, in that setting and stuff. And, and I write about, uh, for instance, going to my, the first level of leadership in, in the regular army was primary leadership development course. Well, I, I got slotted into that, uh, course because somebody dropped out. I went, um, pretty early in my career and ended up getting kicked out of the course filed it filed an appeal it's an amazing story was reinstated graduated with the most demerits in the history of the NCAA <laughs> academy <laughs> in Fort Bliss Texas that's awesome i love it you failed the leadership course and you end up going on being the top leader in the army and and or you know one of them and you write a book on leadership you can't make that up. <laughs> you couldn't make this stuff up. <laughs> That's awesome. There's qualities of leadership, and then there's there's certain things that that change when your position changes, and you take on the leadership of more and more people and more and more structure and and complexity. Can you tell us about how that evolution was for you? Like how you had to adapt and evolve your leadership style and capacity as you took more and more responsibility on. Well, I mean, one thing that I learned along the way and learned early in my career is that if you take care of your people, they'll take care of the job. And so going from a team leader to, you know, to a, a squad leader in, and then up to a platoon sergeant and stuff, those lessons always seem to resonate with me. And so, you know, as I became a first sergeant and stuff, I would tell my, my section leaders, and then even as a sergeant major, you know, talking to my first sergeants, I would tell them, you need to get used to the fact, you know, there will always be issues to deal with, you know, especially deployed. There's always somebody who's has a family member that's struggling or somebody has passed away or some incident in their family back home that draws their attention and their focus away from what's going on. And, you know, as a leader, you need to be in there with them. And, and and helping them, and I would tell my leaders, you're going to spend ninety percent of your time dealing with ten percent of the people, and and just get used to it. Get used to that. There's always going to be somebody, you know, somebody passed away back home, or you know, there's this or that struggle back home. You know, don't think smooth sailing is just is an absence of that because it's not. There's always going to be something that. You, will require your attention and that if you can aid those leaders under you in those things and in do you know it frees them up to do their job and i would tell them look my my job as a leader is to make you successful and that set the tone you know for you know what happened during that deployment and then when we came back i thought i would be a first sergeant for at least in a few more years and all of a sudden, I got a phone call one day, and it was like, "Boom, you're getting promoted to sergeant major." And and I, you know, I would talk to my leaders about that. Like, look, the doors can open rapidly, and you need to be ready to step through. And 
and because you never know when that's going to happen. And, you know, making a sergeant major and becoming the, you know, the top enlisted leader in the battalion was something when we got back from the deployment that I thought, okay, that could be a possibility a number of years down the road. I never honestly envisioned it happening in within a month. Yeah. It seemed to me that um, like you have to be very patient in the beginning. It's just like any type of analogy, like getting the spaceship out of the atmosphere. It's like, it seemed to take forever. And then suddenly, you know, it's gone and it just, it just launches. Because I, I remember in my, uh, my career was long, you know, 20 years. And I was right at that cusp, right, as, a, as an 05, where things, you know, would have started happening faster because I was just about getting to the stratosphere, right? Not that, you know, stratosphere, you might say, is like really far. I'm talking about like flag rank or command sergeant major. Oh, yeah. You reach breakout velocity. But I saw things with my peers who stayed in suddenly happened very fast, right? Suddenly they're 06, next thing you know, they're being looked at, especially after the war kicked off, you know, they're being looking at for flag. And I'm like, holy cow, like literally that was me four years ago, right? Or five years ago. And I could have been a flag officer. And then I, you know, then boom, boom, boom. I have friends who went from 06 to, you know, three-star admiral within six years and running, you know, CENTCOM and all this kind of stuff as like, or SOC CENT. It blew me away. And I often uh, had a little bit of tinge of regret for getting out at 20. But by then, my business had taken off and my family needed me. And you know, so I, always, I also thought that, you know, this is kind of funny, but people, you know, the, the term commander sounds a lot better than captain, you know, in the Navy, because everyone thinks that, you know, a captain is an 03. <laughs> but commander sounds like you just kind of are in charge of something. <laughs> Anyways, a little sideline. Did you ever have to, um, like be a shit screen for a lousy uh, officer, a lousy you know uh, counterpart who was running the the officer side of the shop. Well, uh, yeah, I did, and um, there were some toxic leadership. You can never let your guard down for it. You know, one of the things that I talked to my soldiers about was the fact that you can learn just as much from a toxic leader as you can from a good leader. Mm -hmm. The law of contrast, right? Exactly, yeah. and that I would tell them you're going to run across them at some point in your career. You're going to run across them. Unfortunately, the military is kind of the perfect breeding ground because good leaders have other options, you know, through, and like, like you were saying, my bit, your business was taken off. Good leaders have options to go do other things. And that's a constant pull to them to leave the military and go off and do something else because they can be successful in, in doing that other thing. Toxic leaders can stay and, you know, and permeate and affect, you know, soldiers or service members and they can stay in the military and just keep going. And so, you know, there were definitely some some toxic leaders that that I dealt with that it was head to head on quite a few occasions. Yeah. And it's your job to stand up for the enlisted and to, you know, to block the crap from rolling downhill into them. That can be painful. I've always thought that in the military, you know, the those who love to lead and those who love to serve, right, they get promoted by virtue of that passion and and the success of their team. But those who love to play the system and to work their career so that they can get promoted, they actually succeed. It's called the Peter Principle. But they don't succeed because of their success of their team. They succeed because they this illusion that they create. And uh, and they and they ultimately can do a lot of damage. 
unfortunately, the system doesn't have a great way to, to weed them out. And that's how I made Sergeant Major was the Sergeant Major that was the aviation Sergeant Major here in the state was, you know, one, probably one of the most toxic leaders that have ever been around. And finally, he did some questionable things. There were some allegations and he threw in his retirement paperwork. And otherwise, like I said, I, I would have stayed a first sergeant for a number of years after that, which I was fine with, you know, getting a toxic leader out is a win for the military in many cases. We got to wrap this up, but um, what do you think uh, the state of the army is, or even the military in general right now? Because, you know, I'm starting to read some things. There seems to be some discontent amongst some senior enlisted, especially post-Afghanistan. But I don't want to make this political, but more more about the cultural wokeism and the stuff that's going on in the military, which has always been used as a laboratory, you know, for cultural edge stuff. Well, ho- hopefully, uh, in my opinion, the, you know, that wokeism that's creeped in, you know, that pendulum will swing for you guys like you and I, it'll swing way too far over. Hopefully that'll come back at some point. I, I'm confident that it will. But the one thing I, you know, I wrote an editorial piece talked about the fact that right now, all the poor leadership in the military gets all the press, all the bad leaders. But the central point of the article was, was basically that they're, uh, even though that gets all the press, there's still good leaders throughout the services that are doing the right thing, that are um, taking care of their, their soldiers, their you know, service members, and teaching those lessons that will raise up that next generation. I go, I went two weeks ago uh, to a barbecue um, back at, you know, my guard unit at the aviation hangar. And I looked around and the senior leaders are, were the soldiers, were the young soldiers under me in Afghanistan. And I looked around and I, you know, put my arm around a few of them and just said, look at you guys, you know, well, and gals, look at you, you soldiers, look where you're at now. It, Afghanistan was 10 years ago. You're now senior leaders and just told them how proud I was of them. And so the good thing about the military is that it, it infuses that culture in the younger generation and the new enlistees. And I'm confident that that will overcome in the long run. Yeah, I love that. Awesome. All right. So um, where can people find uh, more about you, uh, Command Sergeant? Major Bradley Jones <laughs> and your book? Um, it, it's available on Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble. Um, it's in paperback, Kindle version. Um, it's on Audible. So it's my own voice. Uh, so I recorded the whole book. I'm on uh, Instagram, uh, author Bradley Jones. Uh, Twitter, author BP Jones. Um, so um, there's plenty of places that they can find me. Mark, thanks for having me on the show. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, likewise. I appreciate it very much, Bradley. And uh, thank you for your service and thank you for paying it forward by uh, helping others get inspired by your leadership uh, lessons and your life story. So, hoo-yah, as we'd say in the SEALs. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Mark. And thank you for your service, my friend. I appreciate that. All right. Thank you very much, sir. What a really fun episode. I love talking to leaders. I love talking to military members who serve for a long period of time and are willing to pay that back in the form of sharing their insights and um, especially on leadership, which is near and dear to my heart. It's a great episode. Thank you so much, uh, Command Sergeant Major Bradley Jones, for your service and for writing this awesome book, Trading the Deep. Show notes are up at our website, markdevine.com. 
You can find me on Twitter at Mark Devine and Real Mark Devine at Instagram and Facebook, or you can find me at my LinkedIn profile. The Divine Inspiration Newsletter comes out every Tuesday morning where I post my blog, whatever's top of mind there, uh, post the show notes for the podcast for that week, as well as other really interesting things that come across my desk that I think that you would find valuable. So if you're not on that subscription list, go to markdevine.com and subscribe. Shout out to my amazing team, Q Williams, Jason Sanderson, Jeff Haskell, who help bring guests like Bradley to us every week. Reviews and ratings, very, very helpful. Help others find us, give us credibility, keep us floating above the amazingly number of podcasts that are popping up every week. So if you haven't rated and reviewed us, please consider doing so wherever you listen. And uh, I'm on a quest to get 5,000 five-star reviews this year. Thank you for your support. Uh, We are facing a seemingly divided, complex, strange, and toxic culture. Um, A lot of systems are breaking down. We have an old guard that is struggling to hang on to its power while we have new system structures, growing positive mindset and consciousness evolving. And I'm very optimistic about the future, but we're going to go through some challenging VUCA times. It's up to us to train ourselves to navigate that and to be great teammates and have a strong body, strong minds, and strong teams. So I'm excited to announce that we've launched and pivoted SealFit to orient around hero's journeys. So we've got a year-long hero's journey with four separate quests. You can join any quest or join us on the whole year-long process. First quest that you might have heard or you heard us talk about on this podcast is the quest to be seal fit, which is a 90-day adventure with a two-and-a-half-day event, immersive training event, uh, a challenge, and group coaching. The second quest is the quest to be unbeatable. The third, the quest for the inner warrior. And the fourth, the quest to be sheepdog strong. It's incredible training. I invite you to go check it out at sealfit.com slash show and receive a special offer for being a valued listener. Thanks so much for all you do. Thanks so much for your support. And until next time, be the change you want to see it in the world, but do it with your team. Booyah. Goodbye now. Bye now.